to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am your host, and my name is Alejandro Rojas, and I am here with my news guy, who is uh, Martin Fancy Butt Willis. Fancy Butt? Yeah, I was going to use the A word, but, uh, you know, I post these on YouTube now, and I don't want to risk, uh, you know, a rating issue. That's true. Yeah, yeah. We can picture what you, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it doesn't really work that well. What's that? Fancy butt. I know. It doesn't sound yeah. half as good. Now, no. have you ever ran into an issue with a guest, you know, using profanity or something on YouTube and then you having any sort of rating issue? No, I've had that happen a couple of times. And, uh, you know, I'll uh, one time I repeated the word. I said, I don't think we could say beep. Um, yeah, beep on this show. And no, nothing ever happened. Huh. Yeah, I know. Oh. Like I've had like like Chris O'Brien. I know. Oh, I've that's said a couple who it was things. I think too. <laughs> oh, really? Same person. <laughs> so, yeah, that is so funny. So, just so the guests know, you know, this is actually a UFO show. Uh, although I oh, yeah. might get off topic a bit, and I will in a second. But you're going to enjoy it because I'm going to talk about you know just how and why uh, Martin is so fancy. But we will be talking UFOs, uh, UFO news, and then um, our guest today. And I'm very excited about this. I know I always say that, but uh, there's an extra level of excitement for my guest, Nick Pope. And the reason why is that he used to work for the Ministry of Defense investigating UFOs for the British government. And of course, a lot of the news that we're talking about and some of what we'll be talking about with Nick, including some very new and interesting insight, is, you know, uh, the U.S. government uh, investigation into UFOs. And I, I think that uh, you all will be intrigued by our conversation because we will, you know, uh, I feel we do ask, I do ask some of the tougher questions that, you know, people think that could be posed. And um, uh, I think Nick's answers are, are just extremely insightful uh, and intelligent. And so uh, this will be a lot of fun. And, you know, it helps that he has a British accent uh, to add oh, yes. to the his answers even sounding more intelligent. It has that way, doesn't it? It does, quite. It quite does. So, I and I called you, awesome. speaking of fancy, and, and, and Europe, you know, uh, we don't have to give details because I know you can't talk about your clients, but... This is amazing. So you're just finishing a job. You're starting a new one, and you sent me, you know, the the picture of the mansion because you're, um, um, you know, uh, giving, I guess, pricing for this really expensive historic stuff. But so this person you just got done with, can I at least add, you know, where she went and stuff? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Sure. Yeah. She's she's a famous uh, television family. That's uh, that's the best way you can put it. Uh, yeah, uh, no. Traveling just fa- France with an open pocketbook, purchasing uh, amazing stuff. 
whatever she wanted for 30 years just for fun. And, um, yeah, sixth floor, uh, townhouse at downtown Boston is just absolutely so much fun to go through. That is incredible. That would be, I can only imagine the type of stuff you're looking at, probably furniture and art and that sort of thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Some really historic pieces too. Wow. So it's a lot of fun. So uh, speaking of the East Coast, um, I'm going to be in Baltimore in a few weeks from November 8th to the 11th. And so will Nick Pope, Mm. my guest. We're both going to be speaking at AlienCon. And uh, since it's kind of is that that's probably still quite a jaunt for you, huh? Uh, You know, I've I've went and visited uh, Ray Stanford down there and it took me about, I think, about seven hours, Mm. something like that drive. It is a bit of a jaunt. So you probably but, uh, won't be coming out to visit us. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. Yeah. But uh, you but uh, but alien con. Yeah, I mean that's kind of a that's kind of a strange way. Alien con. Uh, yeah, that's what they're calling it. This is uh, those wow. of you who watch Ancient Aliens probably see the commercials for this during the program. Uh, this is kind of. They're the major sponsor or the backer of, of this thing, although it's a different company that runs it. And, uh, and of course, Giorgio and, and uh, Eric Von Daniken and some of these other people who are on that program uh, are, are the speakers. And uh, so I've got an opportunity. We are going to have a UFO Congress booth there. Uh, we oh. did that at their last event in Pasadena and sold stuff like crazy. Uh, because we have the coolest UFO and alien stuff, if you ask me. In fact, you may hear some typing here and there in the background, and that is the uh, famous Karen Brard actually procuring uh, some more alien and UFO products for our event and and theirs. And so, yeah, so that ought to be a lot of fun. Wow. And when did you say that was? November, I think the event is actually 9th to the 11th. Ah. So just Google Alien Con and you'll find it. That's right. Wow. Nice. Yep. So uh, let's go ahead and get into some UFO news. What you got for us? Well, I think this is uh, interesting. Uh, This is uh, something that Cheryl Costa wrote. Uh, She always writes in the uh, Syracuse Times, or New Times, I guess it's called. And uh, I really like this article. It's the mystery of changing UFOs. The prize is hiding in the details. That's a subtitle. Uh, so basically, she's talking about one of the most uh, perplexing of all UFO shapes. Um, and she's talking about the morphing or the changing UFO category. I have heard a number of people talk about it. I always thought it was very uh, interesting and curious. Maybe uh, sometimes I thought maybe something changed an angle or something why people say uh they change but people talk about drastic changes in shape um so she goes on to write that uh you know she was thinking that was perhaps the observers that were flawed but maybe there's really something to this uh because she listened to the uh talk show uh with george knapp uh on coast to coast and he was interviewing Shakla Lee, um who of course, is one of the deans of ufology. And uh, so Jacques was uh, making a point about the changing UFOs that seemed to morph in an effort to confound observers, their cameras and other scientific equipment that researchers might be using. So um, 
I have, I know I, I've heard of like uh, people saying, well, maybe it's uh, uh, ball lightning or plasma or something like that. But it's not just, uh, we're not talking about just lights in the sky. We're talking about um, actually seeing some type of what may look like some type of craft and actually shape, uh, change shape as well, not just the lights. Mm-hmm. So, and I have heard of a number of stories. As a matter of fact, one of the most amazing stories I heard is a guy that's not even interested in UFOs told me about. Really? You know, some, some, yeah, he told me. Uh, want me to tell the story real quick? Sure, that'd be great. Uh, uh, this is a guy that's actually on the Antiques Roadshow constantly, and I used to share an office with him. And one day I admitted to him that I, um, you know, I did a show on UFOs, and he looked at me real serious. He goes, I saw one. And I go, well, can you tell me about it? <laughs> and he said, well, yes, he was in uh, uh, in college. And he said, they were, he said, I'll, I'll admit I was drinking. We were in a <laughs> dorm. And he says, but outside, something caught our eye outside. And he said, we saw this thing swoop in and we looked and it was the shape of a box, uh, like a rectangular box with lights all around it. And it was just floating. Um, he was on like the 17th floor and, uh, um, Amherst and Amherst College and he says it was below them and then he saw it shoot off into the sky and all of a sudden he saw it burst into five lights mm. and then the lights were opposing and they were like he said they were like they signaling back and forth and then he heard noise and he saw a, um, a, a fighter jet with its afterburner going right toward it and as soon as it got nearer the thing he said absolutely disappeared vanished. Uh, which I think is really a great Not the jet, but sighting. the UFO. The UFO completely vanished. All the wow. lights were just gone. It was totally gone. He never saw it take off or anything. So I said to him, my God, I said, didn't that change your whole life? And he goes, I could care less. <laughs> I could I care so, less. I was so shocked by that answer. Uh, I never what forgot that. What a funny that. answer. Yeah. And so I asked him if he would talk on my show. He goes, not a chance. Wow. <laughs> He sounds no, like a character. a character. Oh, he definitely is. How yeah. funny. Wow, that's a that's that's a great sighting though. And you're right. This is a great story and I'm glad that Cheryl tackled this because uh, uh the stats that she showed were also interesting in that the uh reports of morphing uh you know craft or or UFOs uh is consistent throughout the years. Uh, which kind of bolsters the point that this isn't just mistaken, you know, these, but, uh, you know, if, if they were mistaken and people were just accidentally, you know, seeing something more, you probably wouldn't see that consistency throughout the years that she's demonstrated uh, there is. So, uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think uh, it was a fascinating topic for her to tackle. And she goes into, like you said, she goes into all the statistics it's very, uh, very well written article, and mm-hmm. there's uh, graphs and everything, and so that's graphs. Uh, you know, there's even graphs. Yeah, she even writes Whoa. graphs. Yep. So if you go <laughs> uh, to the Syracuse New Times website, you can see that article right there. Right, and you can find that uh, the front page of OpenMinds.tv. And yes, it's linked right there. So you can also see moving on to a, n- a new story where you and I are at least. Uh, w- have a bit of an I told you so, I think, moment here is uh, on our front page. You'll also see a bunch of stories about Tom DeLong and To the Stars. And, of course, you and I have talked about this. And um, mm-hmm. 
you know, I didn't shy away from this, even though people call me a kind of a, a apologist or something for Two Stars. And and a bit I am, I'd, I'd admit, because I'm very excited about what they're doing. And I think what they're doing is really important. But this, uh, you know, in the UFO conspiracy circles, people were talking about them being $37 million in debt. And uh, I was afraid that this was kind of, and I was half expecting, I don't know about you, that it would bleed into mainstream media. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, it did. Uh, mm-hmm. Ars Technica wrote the first story, and then uh, some others wrote a story on that. And, of course, uh, DeLong actually responded upset, and so did To the Stars, because they were way off base. And it has to do with uh, something I pointed out, because people mentioned this. So I looked at the SEC uh, security document, and um, you see here that if you go down to the budget, because it's all outlined here, those millions of dollars are on this line called stock-based compensation. People are speculating, oh, they built a big UFO with that $30 million. They're not going to share it with people. They're just going to call bankrupt and fly around in their UFO or something like that. But um, no, stock-based compensation. So uh, I don't know the deep, you know, this is just as complicated as the, the astrophysics that some of the guys come on and talk about. But uh, uh, or that Chris Cogswell, he wrote a great story actually on the, the, the science of investigating materials and it's very high level too uh you can find that on open minds but um this stock based compensation line is not real money it's not money they spent it's essentially how the they compensate their employees and investors and others i guess with stock and um I have a story on openminds.tv from Isaac Coy. That's not his real name, but he's actually a barrister in the UK, a lawyer in the UK who uh, is into UFO stuff. And he explains this a little better. And although he is uh, often critical occasionally of To The Stars, he says these stories were really unfair and completely off base. That That's not real money that they owe. Uh, essentially, I guess in order to make good on this, they do need money to uh, come in but it's kind of like um, you know a, a lot of these organizations are non-profit and the people involved don't get paid at all like MUFON or something like that and uh, however in this case they'll it in the hopes that the company makes money eventually uh, then they will make money off of uh, the stock that they're compensated from uh, and that's kind of where this all comes down to so it was not, they're not $37 million in debt. That's completely inaccurate. And uh, everybody, including Ars Technica and the mainstream, has corrected their stories. So they've got some oh, that's good. egg on their face. Yeah, and I'm sure that that author, and who I felt was, you know, he wrote a sloppy story is what I've called it. Because it is, you know, and unfortunately we've talked about this before. The mainstream media, when they write about paranormal UFOs, don't seem to always adhere to the the level standards that standards. they do with others. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so they are loose with their facts and statements and kind of tongue-in-cheek like this story was, and, and he was way off on it. So um, so I, I just feel kind of glad that at least, you know, we took kind of a more uh, closer look at that than many did. And... You know, when I was pointing out, hey, guys, this is stock-based competition. This isn't real dollars, what you're seeing here, spent. They're not like, 
you know, this isn't, you know, they're not in debt. I got a lot of criticism for it for other people. Oh, yeah, right. You know, and then what is it? Why mm. would they say this? And it's like, well, we just have to ask people. As always, when you don't understand something, instead of making some big conspiracy, you need to talk to an expert to explain it to you is what it comes down to, which is what journalism is and what this is what why we do these interviews. And uh, certainly... Many times when you have an expert come in and explain, hey, guys, this is what this really means. It's not as um, nefarious uh, or or as it may seem to be. Is there some type of uh, tax implications to this as well? I mean, for the reason of this filing? I think you're exactly I'm pretty sure. And from what I understand, that's what it, it why they have to report it in this way. It's all about tax reporting. So mm. I guess there's a perceived value or potential value to uh, the stocks and they have to report that value. And that's what this is all about is uh, is uh, Isaac Coy puts it and you can read the details because like I said, it gets over my head. He He talks about like, let's say you've got a company, you're selling books. And, you know, you're you're selling a thousand books and, um, you know, you make ten thousand dollars a year. Uh, but somebody gives you a technology and says, hey, you can have this and you can um, now sell this. Well, in order to develop that technology, you would sell stock into your company, which is kind of, you know, projected what your company and you have to guess. I think I'm going to be able to make X amount. So I'm going to. Uh, value my stock at this and uh, so then you're going to sell that stock so you can develop your product and so you have to report you know what your potential value is uh, when for your company so it and I think that that kind of makes sense to me um, so that it's it's similar to that now, I wonder if they've like had people try to pull out of you know people that are investing or I mean wonder if this has been a real negative, you know, uh, has had negative implications to what they're trying to do. You know what? That's a very good question. And uh, at least I've heard anecdotally, anecdotally that, um, some investors have been a bit, uh, taken aback by this because they didn't understand. And they're like, "Uh Oh, what the heck? You know, did I just throw away all my money? And, um, and and they supposedly have not gotten answers when they ask about it. I don't know that mm. any of that is true. Um, those are just some of the accusations out there. And, of course, there's so much mudslinging going on. In fact, yeah. earlier, I think it, today, I had a I, – I like my little saying here. What I told someone is that um, – it, it, the UFO community often it has a bad habit of eating its own. And mm. the bigger the fish, the more they feast. And mm-hmm. what I mean is TTSA, Bigelow, all of these organizations, the bigger you are when you get involved with this topic, the more you're criticized and just attacked. Sure. And, uh, and, and, which is frustrating, and, uh, but unfortunately the way it is. Yeah, um, some, you know, some actually deserve it, but, uh, but, you know, the, some, yeah, yeah, um, because they're, they're actually, it is a, just a money game. Right. But those aren't usually, at least to me, the big fish in, in the respect of a mainstream, 
Uh, mm-hmm. Often those are people in certain niches who are take adva- taking advantage of those, and they become big as far as followings and, and dollars, I think, that they pull in. Some of these people, um, even though they're charlatans, like you're saying, but uh, what can you do, huh? Right. Can only keep our side of the street clean, as mm-hmm. they say. Yeah, mm. and, and doing that, you know, I think that Chris Cogswell, and he is a bit of a critic when it comes to To the Stars, uh, he, uh, of course, I've had him on fairly recently. He's a PhD in chemical engineering, but I, I, he did it the right way. He submitted, and I'm so happy he did. He submitted this paper to me uh, for Open Minds about the science of proving if an object is created by an extraterrestrial civilization. And his, his intent is that, you know, if To the Stars is claiming that they're going to be doing this sort of analysis... Here's the sort of analysis that needs to be done. And I think that's the right way to do it. It's a professional way to say that, hey, public, you know, here is what they are up against. And he's kind of saying, as a scientist in this field, this is the bar that I'm going to hold them to when they come out with their information, which is the appropriate way to do it. That's how science is done is that, you know, science check each other's work. And um, right. so that's what he's going to be doing. He's going to say, it's kind of like, hey, guys, you know, I, I think really you or anybody else doing this, this is what you need to do if we're going to prove this to the mainstream scientific community. That's right. That's what makes sense. So it's a great article. It's highly technical. I don't know if you read it. The first few paragraphs, the introduction, I, I get. And that's the most important part. He outlines, you know, the steps and everything. And then it gets really technical into the actual tests that need to be done, X-ray diffraction, isotopic research, and atoms, and isotopic ratio mass spectrometry. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. All this really complicated stuff. So uh, uh, especially for you science nerds out there who do know what all this stuff is, I think you'll really love this article. You'll find it at Open Minds. I was just scanning through it. Wow, it is very thorough. It is, isn't it? Yeah, really makes a lot of sense too. A lot of big words. There's are there words that you don't know, or are you kind of a physics genius? Uh, uh, there are words <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's good that you're honest, because if you would have said wow. you were a physics genius, I would have called you on it. Oh no, I'm so glad I almost did. Right here wow. in public, in front of everybody, yeah. I would have said you're. Full of it, my friend. But no, you're well, an honest dude. Well, yeah. I'm not really up on what energy dispersive X-ray spectroscopy is. <laughs> Me either. Very yeah, complicated really. stuff. But it makes right. a lot of sense. Essentially, he's saying that it's threefold. You have to prove that something is made in space. But if it's made in space, that doesn't necessarily mean it. it's you know of an extraterrestrial intelligence because a meteor, for example, would come from space. So it also right. needs to demonstrate it's engineered. It's a manufactured thing. But even if it's manufactured in space, that doesn't necessarily mean it's from an extraterrestrial civilization. So the one more thing that you need is uh, that the technology used to produce this uh, uh, engineered material needs to be uh, of a nature that is uh, foreign to us or m- more advanced that we don't understand. So those three things. And uh, it does sound like to the stars and in, in what they're looking at is trying to do just that. So it'll be interesting, of course, and it'll be groundbreaking if they're able to prove such a thing in the future. 
Right. I mean, you know, there with the elements that are available in the universe, we who knows? I mean, something could be exactly like something we could make and still be alien technology. Yeah, that's entirely possible. Uh, the point is that uh, in order to prove it to the mainstream that it is extraterrestrial, it'll have to go beyond. But you're that's right. right. Yeah. And that is even the case with extraterrestrial life. So there are instances, and we have this video with uh, you know a NASA scientist talking about it, where there's... Uh, life found on a meteorite or potential signs of life uh but it the next step of proving that it came from elsewhere not the planet that's the hard part even though it may have we mm. haven't we're not necessarily able to prove that but we're out that's of time right. we are already wow yeah yes flies. well thank you so much uh for joining us with the news martin willis check him out on podcast ufo we will be right back after this short break with nick pope so stay tuned. I am very happy to welcome back to the show, Nick Pope. Now, I know you're a busy guy, and uh, thank you so much for coming back to the show. Thank you. It's great to be back on. Now, uh, it's great to have you, too, because it wasn't so long ago where I think you said you were going to kind of slow down your involvement in the field of UFOs, but that didn't really happen, did it? Well, as the classic quote goes, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. (laughs) It may be a good thing, because as soon as you said, you know, you might uh, uh, reduce your involvement, then exciting things happen to pull you back in. So it worked. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and the exciting things that happened were related to the government, the United States government, because all of a sudden the United States uh, had a secret program, and uh, you have kind of a pa- counterpart in Lou Alexander uh, or Elizondo, someone who was involved with investigating UFOs for the U.S. Uh, however, as you've written in uh, The Guardian, and this is what's really exciting about your recent article, is that you kind of highlight the impact that is happening behind the scenes that people don't know so much about. So I guess my question, my first question would be, uh, you talk about in this article how the uh, the the Congress essentially is, is starting to take notice and, and ask questions. And how did you come about that information? Uh, f- from a number of sources, but uh, including some currently uh, serving internal governmental sources. And to clarify what's going on, it's a complex situation. There are three different strands to the current congressional interest. And I'll I'll just take them one by one if I can. That'd be great. The first, yeah, the first is the Senate Armed Services Committee. Now, they are looking specifically at the 2004 Nimitz incident, which, of course, we've all seen the the uh, videos of the Navy jets chasing the UFOs. This was a big part of the New York Times story when, when they ran it in December last year. Uh, so Senate Armed Services Committee has interviewed at least two of the pilots involved in that incident, reached out to, and I'm not sure whether they have or haven't yet interviewed one of the radar operators, but so there is that strand of interest. 
separately, in parallel, the House Armed Services Committee is or has looked more generally at ATIP. What is it? What was it doing? How was taxpayers' money spent? What did they conclude? And there is a, a congressional record which I linked to in my Guardian article. And, and it specifically says there that the Defense Intelligence Agency, and of course this was a, a DIA program, supplied the House Armed Services Committee with essentially a briefing answering those questions. So Senate Armed Services Committee, House Armed Services Committee, and just when you think it couldn't get more complex, the Space uh, Technology uh, the, pardon me, the Science, Technology and Space Committee have have taken a look at this and the Space Subcommittee and Representative Amy Berra raised this in a roundtable discussion hosted by Politico some months ago. And Amy Berra said, yeah, I've had discussions with the chair of the Space Subcommittee and the full Science, uh, Technology and Space Committee. So there's there's arguably three strands of congressional interest in this, in specifically the Nimitz incident, specifically in ATIP, and I think segueing from that into the wider question of UAP itself. What is the phenomena? What, what are we dealing with here? And so there is undisput indisputably this multi-stranded congressional interest. The real question is, is any of that going to transition into formal hearings? And if so, who's going to lead on that? I mean, for example, what if the space subcommittee decided, yeah, we want to get into this, but the there was pushback from, say, the Armed Services Committee saying, wait a minute, ATIP was was a, a military and intelligence community program, you know, hands off. So that, I suspect, is the sort of discussion that's going on behind the scenes at the moment. Firstly, will there be formal hearings? And secondly, who's who's going to be managing them? What's interesting, too, especially when it comes to the space committee, uh, is that it's Bigelow Aerospace because they are, and I don't think I, I make a point of to to call this out every time I can, but I don't think people realize what a big player they are on the space scene. They're one of the big guys, you know, that the space committee is considering um, when they're when they're working on their uh, policies and, and future around working with private corporations. And of course, Robert Bigelow is also in the mix in that he received funding from the the Defense Intelligence Agency for these paranormal investigations. Well, yes, indeed. And of course, people are still trying to untangle the thorny interrelationship between all, all these different acronyms that are flying around <laughs> ATIP and uh, ORSAP and uh, Bigelow Aerospace and specifically the, the BAS and NIDS and, and trying to figure out. And, and now, of course, the To The Stars uh, academy all all these players all these complicated interrelationships and i don't i don't profess to have all all the answers on this and i should i should say because this came up actually yesterday i i am not a member 
of any of, of these organizations. I, I tend not to be a joiner. I, I'm, I'm a bit of a lone wolf. So I, I had no official, despite my back, government background in the UK, I had no uh, official involvement with, with ORSAP or, or ATIP. I, I'd left the British government by then anyway, and it's not clear that, that the UK government even had a, a role in in these programs. And I'm certainly not a, a member. I, I have never worked for any, any um, Robert Bigelow company or entity, and neither am I a member of, of the To The Stars Academy. So I don't, I don't hold a brief for any of these people, which in, in one sense is good. I can take a step back. I can hopefully look at the, the big strategic picture. And while I'm bound, of course, by the British government secrecy oath, I, I have no sort of non-disclosure agreements here in the UK, in the US. So I can call it how I see it. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it interesting, too, as we all try to figure this out, is how all of these uh, groups relate. And um, I guess just to, as an example of unanswered questions. You referred to OSAP, which was the Advanced Aerospace Weapon System Application Program. And from reporting from George Knapp we, uh, at KLAS in Las Vegas, we, we know the existence of this program, and they're the ones who work with Bigelow and receive the funding. But at the same time, then uh, this other organization, Elizondo was part of, uh, ATIP, uh, it w was created we don't know when or how that kind of took over at least the UFO portion. Uh, but there's so many unanswered questions uh, inside of that, um, that we, who knows when we'll get the answers to that one. And, and one of those is, and, and this is interesting, is this kind of terminology. We hear ATIP referred to as the advanced aerospace threat uh, identification program. Uh, the DOD is referred to it as the advanced aviation uh, threat identification program. And then in this document you're talking about, uh, it's kind of funny because they refer to it as the Advanced A Aerospace Threat and Identification Program. Yes, and one wonders with all of this whether, and uh, I, I obviously, when I was in the UK government, I received Freedom of Information Act requests and dealt with them, so I didn't make them. But one wonders what effect, for example, leaving out an and would would have on, on something like this. As you say, if you look at the the uh, congressional record, the, the House congressional record dated April 9th, one sees in, in as, as you say, paragraph 4381, this this reference uh, to to um, advanced aerospace threat and identification program. And one wonders, you know, if people are making FOI requests and they leave out an and, or if they ask for aerospace and um, Pentagon is, is right and actually it's aviation, whether whether these, these FOI requests are going to fall because of a missing and, or, mm -hmm. or whether in the spirit of the act, people will respond and say, well, this is clearly what you meant. Here's the paperwork. But of course, it's it's staggering, actually, how little we we have from from the government at the moment. Another interesting aspect is uh, that the government, uh, our government is, is so interested. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, you know, there's there's three different committees 
that have decided since the New York Times article in December to actively uh, investigate or inquire about uh, the topics raised in uh, the ATIP program that uh, Elizondo and, and the New York Times have, have, and to the stars have brought to the light. Um, this is pretty shocking, really, in that what's interesting, and, and I'd love your input, at least in the UK and in the United States, in the past, uh, Congress really hasn't gotten involved uh, until there was public pressure. But in this case, it's not really due so much to public pressure. It doesn't seem, but it's more like they're taking their own active interest. Do you, do you feel like that's accurate? Yes, I think it is. And one reason, of course, is that the New York Times story, you know, even though this is small change in the defense budget, once you mention that $22 million of taxpayers' money was, was spent, you, all, all sorts of antennae start twitching. And the ultimate irony of this would be if, if the push for certainly Congress to take a look at this, maybe to have hearings. Actually, the irony would be if it came from skeptics who, who might argue, what the heck are we doing spending $22 million of taxpayers' money on this nonsense for? Mm -hmm. So it might be one of those rare occasions where it's the skeptics who've managed to, to really um, kick this one over the line. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting also, when you refer to that Politico article where the space uh, members of the space committee uh, were discussing, uh, I wrote an article on that too because it's, it's fascinating news. Uh, they were discussing this topic in a very positive light. Um, uh, one of the members, a House member I, I, who was part of the committee, I remember, uh, had mentioned how he thought the topic was really interesting, and it was a Politico uh host who actually asked the question but uh, he said yeah he affirmed this is a really interesting question uh i've brought this up in our committee and then the others confirmed that you know amy had she had brought up that she had brought it up uh and the other uh, gentleman uh, who was part of the committee just said he was willing to talk about it he found it interesting as well it seemed like at least in in that environment it was about genuine curiosity on the topic Yes, I think so. And of course, it's no coincidence, perhaps, that literally in, in the last what month, we had NASA's techno signature workshop taking place, I think, uh, down in, in uh, uh, Houston. And, and uh, of course, now the, the, the news that NASA is going to be perhaps focusing a little bit more on the search for life. All, the fact that all these things are happening at the same time can only help, I think. But having said that, I go back to the point that there, there may be pushback from the Armed Services Committee on, on this and a, a certain kind of, what's the expression, get your tanks off our lawn, and, and this is more our business. I mean, if you, if you ask the question, should the Space Committee be getting into the, the nuts and bolts of what an intelligence program embedded in, in DIA did, the, the answer might be no. So it might be that a more appropriate home for inquiries and hearings about ATIP is the Emerging Threats and Capability Subcommittee. And if you look at the, if you look at the uh, terms of reference 
it specifically mentions unconventional threats. And isn't, isn't that almost exactly what we're dealing with here? And going back, of course, to Harry Reid's um, June 24th, 2009 letter to William Lynn III, I mean, I, I think the language is almost identical. Mm-hmm. At the other... Uh... And and that's kind of where you came from as well. You were working for the Ministry of Defense. So you were looking into this, similar to ATIP, which is part of DOD, uh, as a, a potential threat. Yes, very much so. Um, in fact, the, the final two Ministry of Defense UFO files, which have actually yet to be sent to the National Archives, but um, I've, I've, <laughs> I have an advanced copy which I pulled out of my bookshelf uh, just before this interview. And they, they, at quite high levels of classification, get into this very debate. Uh, they, and I'm reading from a document here. It says, the second and critical question is, do UAPs represent a possible threat to the defense of the realm? And then it gets into a sort of uh, almost philosophical argument about Russian aircraft penetrating our air defenses in the Cold War. And it says, well, they they didn't have any hostile intent, but they certainly represented a threat. And then the, the paragraph concludes, thus, the only logical conclusion we can come to is that we do not know if UAPs represent a threat to the defense of the realm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and interesting enough, you know, that r- reminds me of Chile, which is a government who uh, actually investigates. And they came to the conclusion, interesting, that uh, the the uh, phenomena is benign, uh, which I think is the only government agent, you know, to ever do that. Well, it's a nice piece of wishful thinking. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, one of we'll probably get onto this, but my new documentary film, Aliens in the Pentagon, uh, aliens at the Pentagon, pardon me, I can't, can't even get the name of my own movie right. Um, but the, the tagline for that, or one of the taglines is, um, the T in ATIP stands for threat. And there's a reason for that. Now, I don't know what discussions and intelligence analyses the Chilean government and Air Force have had on that, but I am surprised... I'm surprised that they have concluded this is benign. I don't see, I don't see without a proper intelligence assessment, and maybe they've done one, but I have yet to see one. I don't see how they could have made that conclusion because there is an equation. I know this sounds bizarre. There's an equation for whether a, a threat exists, and a threat is said to be a construct of capability and intent. Well, we have some idea of the capability. We have no idea, frankly, of, of the intent. And I'm surprised the Chileans would, would attempt an assessment based on that. That's a really interesting to know that there, there is that formula, which makes sense. Um, and from what I understand, the Chileans uh, used historical data in saying that, you know, uh, I think there, there is even some sort of quote to this uh, effect, which was that historically, you know, that we've our interactions have not caused uh, have not uh, exhibited uh, a malevolence. Um, well, and- yeah, I, I, I get that, but I totally disagree. It's like, OK, Hitler came to power in in 
1933 and you know, Nazi Germany and things. It's kind of a little bit like Stalin saying, well, the Nazi regime hasn't attacked us so far, so there's no threat. Mm-hmm. Well, we all know what happened next. You know, just because something has not displayed overt hostility does not mean that in intelligence terms does not mean you you can say there is no threat. And in fact, in in the last two Ministry of Defense files, when they are released, you will see basically a split developing between different parts of the MOD with the intelligence staff, frankly, saying some pretty disparaging things about my former colleagues <laughs> and saying, who are these people to say there's no threat? What what made them suddenly experts on intelligence an- analysts? That's really interesting. Uh, the second part of this, that Sefa, Sefa, uh, uh, Chilean quote was uh, uh, around the biggest threat is distraction from our pilots when they see one and they they figured they needed to have some training essentially to if there's a UFO around don't worry about it pay attention to uh flying the plane well i agree with that i i have to say that seems to have been lifted directly from the declassified MOD intelligence study project condine which which very famously quoted almost that and and project condine was dated the, the final report was dated 2000 and there was a recommendation on that point and it said air crew encountering uap should take no action aside from trying to keep the object astern in other words whatever these things are don't mess with them so that's where the chileans got that one from they got it from the uk ministry of defense mm-hmm. i'm sure they did because i and, know they rely heavily on on us and, and britain and other countries in their their uh reports Yes, indeed. And and Project Condine is is clearly something that ATIP were aware of as, as well. And and again, if you look at the different studies that that some parts of ATIP were doing uh, and the different technologies, uh, quite a lot of them clearly have have uh, I, I won't say their roots because I, I don't want to claim that the Ministry of Defense was absolutely first into this business. But there is clearly some cross-fertilization between some of what ATIP was doing and some of what's in Project Condine. Really interesting. Um, Geez, the time flies. So another fascinating aspect of all of this, and and I want to say for the listener, uh, Nick and I have a a whole other interview that we've done here on Open Mind GFO Radio on Condine in particular, where we talked about that complete the, the whole time, so you could look that up. But um, when we're getting back to what you were mentioning about, you know, the threats and this possible jockeying with the Space Council, hey, you know, this isn't your uh, wheelhouse, this is ours. As, you know, more and more of our space programs go into the commercial space, What's interesting about this, and it probably even gives uh, uh, Robert Bigelow even more uh, um, importance, is that if they decide in, you know, the public arena to or the private corporations that they need to assess whether there are threats and and how uh, this phenomenon may affect their programs, um, it's interesting to, I guess, speculate on, I wonder if there are 
you know, these conversations happening inside of these corporations. We certainly know it's happening with Bigelow. But uh, I wonder if, you know, he's gotten called from Elon Musk and said, hey, we need to sit down and talk about this. Well, you would hope so, particularly because, of course, space tourism and uh, literally taking people, paying passengers into space is going to be arguably the next step of, of where this is going and indeed a big source of potential income for the private sector, which is, as you correctly say, moving into this this ground increasingly. So, sure, if if there are threats out there, whatever, whether we're dealing with other intelligences or whether we're just dealing with natural phenomena, uh, people like uh, Robert Bigelow, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, uh, they need to know about it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's time to take our first break. So uh, we'll take a short break and then we will be right back for the podcast listeners. You will hear a short musical interlude. But we are here with Nick Pope, uh, who used to work for the Ministry of Defense investigating UFOs, uh, much like we have recently found Lou Elizondo did and others, although we don't know who those others are. And there's much more transparency actually with uh your program than there was with uh, a tip but we'll get into that after the break so we'll be right back you're listening to open mind geofo radio to Open Mind GFO Radio. I am here with Nick Pope, formerly of the Ministry of Defense, currently out there uh, sharing his knowledge and thoughts on the UFO topic, claiming to be the, the expert, the biggest UFO expert in the world, although I would say that, uh, you know, I might agree with that. I, I certainly hold you in very high regard when it comes to this topic. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Do you get a little embarrassed when people say that, that uh, you're the, the foremost UFO expert? Um, I, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure my agent would be pleased uh, with, with those sorts of statements, but I, I, uh, I, will let, I will let the people decide. I mean, clearly, I'm one of a very small number of people, um, Lou Elizondo being another one, who's done this, who's looked at this from the inside. And whether that makes us more expert or not, I don't know, but it certainly gives us a different perspective and an inside view on onto all of this. Well, that reminds me of something else. Uh, Lou uh, always tells me, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert. Um, I don't know anything about this field. And it, because he did not look into the historic information uh, when it came to this, uh, this, this topic, which 
I can see actually makes sense, at least for civilian research. Uh, was that the case with you and your program, or did you look more into the civilian research in this topic? It's a really tricky one. I get Lou's point that, that he wanted to come into this with an open mind, and he didn't want to be you know, kind of dragged down by the baggage of history. Uh, so, so coming to this clean is, is good. And indeed, that's exactly what happened to me in the Ministry of Defense. I, I was simply posted into the UFO program as, as just part of the regular cycle of, of career postings in the Ministry of Defense. I had no prior interest or involvement in this subject, no, no knowledge, no belief, particularly either way. It, I was just given this as a job to do. On the other hand, once I had my feet under the table, and no disrespect to Lewis point, but I did feel that to contextualize the newly reported sightings and, and data that we were getting, it was incumbent on me to do a little bit of, of digging into what has happened before. Not least, for example, so that... I could try to do some trend analysis. I mean, in one sense, it's yes, you want to go into each and every sighting with an open mind. On the other hand, one of the biggest things in the intelligence community is you look for patterns and trends. And to do that, to spot those trends, you need access to historical data. And in fact, one of the big discussions in, in the last two yet to be officially released Ministry of Defense files, is about how can we do a proper intelligence assessment if, if we don't have a big database, look for patterns. You know, for example, are, are there clusters of, of sightings around particular sites? If there are, that might tell us something about intent. But if I can just briefly go back, just quote something again, it's a better quote about this whole threat issue. And it's from a, a document that was classified secret UKISB. And it, it encapsulates this whole thing perfectly. It says, lack of evidence of hostile acts does not mean there is no threat. Mm -hmm. And which does make a lot of sense. I mean, um, I know a lot of people get frustrated. There's a lot of feedback. You've heard, probably heard that feedback also, um, because there is a contingency of people who, um, and I kind of get it really, who refuse to believe that there, there is any threat, but, uh, Oh, completely. I, I get, I, I won't say hate mail, but I get, when I talk about this and when I talk about, um, threats and things, the, the whole, if I can call it the, the new age wing of the UFO community, uh, get up in arms about this. And I get accused of, of, pushing a, a kind of cabalist agenda and and you've heard all the the nonsense about false flag alien invasions i've been accused of whipping up a, a climate of fear and hysteria about <laughs> this so that the new world order can play what allegedly von braun called the last card the, the alien threat and, and that we're going to get some sort of space patriot act um, and, and the new world order and the Illuminati uh, sweep away the last vestiges of our, our freedoms. I mean, you know, that's the sort of territory you get into if you talk too much about a threat. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, you get into something interesting, though, which is where, okay, uh, if there's this renewed interest in our government in this topic, uh, where do they go with it? So, for example, we have uh, Blue Book and the other projects, which just kind of, they looked, they looked, and they ended. Um, of course, I can you can argue what their intentions were, or not necessarily discovery, but even if you get with these newer projects or your projects, they there doesn't seem to be much of an end game there. So even with this renewed interest, where would you recommend, if they were to ask you, where would the government go with this? Well, I think you would have to have a better filter than Blue Book and the British government's UFO project ever had, because it's quite clear if you wade through the 60,000 pages of documents that the MOD has declassified in the last 10 years, that 99% of it is garbage, or, or not garbage, but frankly of, of little value in undertaking a proper intelligence assessment of what we're dealing with. I mean, it's, it's literally, it's, it's clearly, it's, it's 99% aircraft lights and weather balloons and fire lanterns and things like that. You need a way of filtering out that at the very, very early stages and focusing in on your really good, hard data cases. I touched on this in my Guardian article recently, mm -hmm. and I said, let's not get obsessed with, with the numbers game here. Let's let's look at quality and not quantity. And, and of course, everyone, all the skeptics and debunkers love it when the numbers of citing reports go down and we get bogged down. And let's, you know, irrelevant. Let's let's look at the good quality information we have, the pilot sightings, the radar data, the photos and videos that government imagery analysts might look at and say, yeah, this this whatever it is, this is real solid object. Let's find out something about it, which takes us back to the whole Pentagon video saga. But yeah, we've we've got to we've got to get over this this quantity argument and start talking about quality. So I think the the first answer to your question is we need a much more focused inquiry than Blue Book and the MOD's program ever were. Now, if ATIP was that focused program, then then great. And and maybe Congress will get to the bottom of that. That is a great point, too, because it seems like if uh, the model that ATIP uh, took was which was to uh, focus on military cases would be more along the lines of what you're talking about and seems like it would be a better model. However, we have really practically no insight into the results. The only real document we have is, again, one that uh, George Knapp was uh, able to release, which was a leaked document uh, where our knowledge is somewhat limited about it, but it was a report regarding uh, the Nimitz situation in 2004. Yes, I, I've seen that. That's interesting. We do have, to be fair, I, I go back to the fact that we have uh, Harry Reid's June 24th, 2009 letter to to William Lynn III. That's an important piece of the puzzle. I think, I mean, this is, again, it's a dilemma. It's like this question of do you go into sightings fresh or do you look at, at the history? And you can argue it both ways. And, and as much as I have just argued for a focused 
inquiry um, concentrating on military cases. The counter argument to that is that it's it's patronizing and, and just plain wrong to assume that no good data can ever come from the public. So so I don't necessarily say that that I've got the answers to this, but I think these are the sorts of questions we should be asking. One other big factor that I think we can bring into the, the debate about this is the role, particularly if we can get historical data digitized and, and um, searchable. One big factor is the role that artificial intelligence and algorithms could play in in historical analysis. You hear a lot these days about big data and AI, and I think that might just be a, a very fruitful, if Congress is going to look into this and how can we get past some of these roadblocks that we've hit with this you know, over the last 70 years, big data and AI might be an answer to that question. Mm-hmm. That makes a, a lot of sense as well. Um, the other question I would have for you, I guess getting to your documentary, uh, Aliens uh, at the Pentagon. Um, yes. Do you you use the term alien? Was that your idea? Uh, yes, but more not not as a a statement that this is definitively extraterrestrial, just as a provocative title that's going to make people think about the, the situation. And of course, alien can have have a, a double meaning in in that sense. What I've done with aliens at the Pentagon is I've tried to tell the best story I can of the, the some of the very complicated things that we've just discussed about ATIP and Bigelow Aerospace and ORSAP and, and how it all fits together. But I've tried to contextualize it and, and bring in the wider story of how it fits in with, with the U.S. government's efforts over the last 70 years to try and make sense of this, this infuriatingly contradictory phenomenon that, that we're all struggling to deal with. And Aliens at the Pentagon is, is I think, the most complete telling yet of this story. But I don't try and push an answer on people. I, I do, um, I put the, the data, and the information out there and say to people, at the end of the day, you make up your own minds about it. Mm-hmm. And it's, the other thing is, it's, and we've had, you and I have had this discussion before about how to bring young people into this subject. I made a very deliberate decision that, that this was going to be something that we pushed out on all the platforms that these days young people get their information from when they stream. So Aliens at the Pentagon is is on you know Google Play and iTunes and Vimeo and Vudu and, and those sorts of places. Mm-hmm. That makes a, and, a, a lot of sense as well. Absolutely, it's it's a deliberate way of trying to get this to a new audience. But what I'm what I'm doing is is trying to reignite. I feel that the debate has kind of stagnated a little bit. We had the the to the Stars Academy announcement a year ago, then we had the New York Times article in December last year, and we've had the occasional nugget like Harry Reid's letter, like the um, the the Nimitz 
report that you mentioned. But frankly, we've not had a whole bunch of other things. We've had a lot of speculation in the blogosphere and and on various forums and websites, very little from the government. So Aliens at the Pentagon tries to do two things, three things, tries to tell the story, tries to reignite the debate about this, and it tries to reach a different audience. Um, another question I have, that, which is great. Thank you so much for that, because that was you always guess what my next question is going to be. And uh, that's exactly where I wanted to go with it. But uh, that's okay, because I always have so many questions that uh, it helps get into more information such as this. Uh, this is an interesting kind of phenomena or, or result. The way this all happened is so haphazard. Uh, it's interesting. And uh, your perspective, I think, would be especially interesting at, at this point in that uh, Lou Elizondo leaves the DOD uh, because they're not paying enough attention to his project on UFOs. They're not taking UFOs seriously. He uh, then is asked to join to the stars and these other very credible people. Uh, and and in that announcement, you know, says, hey, I used to work for the DOD looking at UFOs. Uh, few people paid attention and, and uh, this New York Times article came out and it blew up. And all of a sudden, now we have arguably certainly more uh, attention uh, to this topic that, by the government than we've had in decades and perhaps uh, more serious attention than, than we've had in, in a very, very long time. Uh, so it, it, by leaving and talking about the program, it seemed to have uh, generated the interest inside the government he was hoping it would generate while he was in the government. Um, I was wondering about your thoughts on, on that unique kind of uh, situation. Well, Lou is clearly a highly principled individual and he's used the phrase I, I think he would like to see kick-started a conversation with the American people and and through that a conversation with their elected um, uh, leaders about how to take this forward and and he and his colleagues in the to the stars Academy I know they have a lot of critics I'm you know I'm not sitting in judgment on on any of that, there's no getting away from the fact that they have played a, a crucial role in in getting this information out and in doing just what Lou said he wanted to, to do, i.e. have this conversation with the American people. Now, where it goes from here, I don't know. We've talked about the congressional hearings, but um, yeah, it's I, I talk about this the way I characterize this in aliens at the Pentagon, is I use the phrase a believer faction. And I talk about a believer faction in government making its move. But I think in a sense, yeah, you're right. To make their move fully, they had to then take it outside of government because obviously in government there, there are the, the, the roadblocks they hit, the skepticism, the fact that finance is, is limited for this sort of research. And the fact that there comes a point where certain people's worldview, and in some case, and this is a controversial point, it's a religious worldview, um, causes senior Pentagon managers to say, let's, you know, let's not be getting into this. And there's no getting away from the fact that 
some of these people have said that UFOs and the paranormal is something they regard as demonic. Well, we don't want we don't want research into this phenomenon halted because somebody in government thinks it's demons. That that's crazy. So yeah, let's let's take it out of there and take it forward now in the private sector. And just as the space program is slipping out of the hands of government into the hands of of the tech billionaires and the venture capitalists and and the private space companies. So the same is happening in parallel with with UFOs. And about time too, maybe. Mm-hmm. And 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 here's a follow up question. In fact, somebody accused me yesterday. Oh, people aren't asking the hard questions. And um, uh, in this question in particular, and I actually did ask Lou this question. I don't think he'd mind me sharing the information. Is if you've gotten the attention you wanted in the first place, what if the government says, "Okay, we're you're you've proven your point. Come back and and let's take a harder look at this." Would you go back? He said no. He said that uh, for the reasons you just outlined, that he feels that this needs to be a public forum and what he was at. And if he were to go back, it wouldn't be a public forum. Now, if the government threw a lot of money at uh, to the stars, who knows uh, what would happen? I mean, uh, if you're faced and and that's my question to you, if you're faced with a lucrative uh, opportunity to do some, um, uh, you know, freelance work for our government or your government to look into this topic, a a serious look where you get to guide, you know, your your efforts and your research. uh, But you couldn't share that publicly. Uh, You'd have to go through your normal channels of getting that your findings declassified or, or shared. Would you do it? Well, it's it's a difficult hypothetical you've just thrown my way. I think my my cop out answer to you is I don't know. I would have to look at any offer on a case by case basis. I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand. I don't know whether Lou did. I, I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand. And the, the reason I wouldn't is that with the best will in the world, government still has access to resources and capabilities that the private sector doesn't. Right. And and that would be attractive to to have access to that and do it on the inside. But it depends it depends how much freedom I was given in terms of of shaping the terms and references, uh, terms of reference of any inquiry and the resources and capabilities that I would then have access to. But I, I don't I don't rule it out because I think even if the balance of power is shifting to the private sector, and it is. I think you can. There are still things government can do that the private sector can't. So, so I'm, I'm undecided about that. On the other hand, I have already done it for the government. So I get Lou's point. Well, we tried that and it didn't work. Let's try something different. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. We are out of time. Of, por- of course, people can go to nickpope.net to find out more about you. Uh, they can also watch your new documentary. It just came out, Aliens at the Pentagon. How long has it been out now, and uh, how has the, the uh, reaction been? Uh, it's been out for about a week. Reaction is really good, and um, I shouldn't say this, but I will. It's, it's kind of segued, for whatever reason, out of the UFO and alternative belief community into, as well, the, the sci-fi and even horror fans. And I think that's just a consequence of the way it's it's – available on all these streaming platforms. Mm-hmm. But the benefit is uh, 
of that, uh, which I appreciate because it's kind of similar with me writing for Den of Geek. It's the entertainment industry, but it's bringing this topic to new audiences. And that's so critical. It's mm-hmm. it's so it's such an important side of this. Yep. Well, thank you so much for being on the show again. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to Nick Pope for joining us again. He is one of my absolute favorite guests and right now is an even more important time to have him so uh this is such an incredible conversation i think right now because you know we're truly seeing the vastly you know the super important um results of this pentagon ufo program being revealed and it's shocking i mean we're in a place that we've never been before just like nick and i talked about We're both, by the way, going to be speaking at AlienCon in Baltimore, November 9th to the 11th. You can go to thealiencon.com is the website for that to find out more. But check it out. Come say hi. It'll be a lot of fun. I think we might be on at least one panel together. But otherwise, we'll be having it out, and it'll be uh, really cool to be out there. I haven't been to Baltimore. I hear that it is gorgeous. But couple other things. Be sure to check me out on UFO Seriously Live, where I just babble on about stuff. Actually, what I do is I talk about the UFO news, so we go over every story, and I go over some of the other stuff that we've posted for the week, including uh, that story that uh, I talked about earlier from Chris Cogswell, the PhD in chemical engineering. Of course, he's been on the show before. Excellent article. Highly recommend that people go check that out at openminds.tv. Also, check out the conversation on Facebook if you're on Facebook at the Open Minds UFO group. Lots more conversation. And it's really growing a lot lately, which is fun because I think it's one of the rare uh, groups out there where you get a lot of information about uh, UFO stories in the mainstream. And there's a lot of great people in there. So they're sharing their insight and their knowledge as well. Also, check me out on Patreon. That would be wonderful. Uh, On my Patreon, you'll be able to follow uh, all of the different things I'm doing besides UFO uh, as well. So such as my Den of Geek stories or I've got an Alejandro Advantage, a different YouTube site where I'm doing different YouTube stuff. So you could check that out. Uh, You could click on the button that's there on the front page of openminds.tv. And then, of course, be sure to go to ufocongress.com to check out updates really there you're going to find links too so you'll find links to the video portal you got all of the 2018 ufo congress lectures that you can watch up there on video on demand and then uh of course check out our youtube because we're on a regular basis there are older lectures being posted there for free so that's a great youtube go there and subscribe if you haven't yet uh so you can check out lots of free uh content that's getting posted stuff that you're not going to find anywhere else It's getting posted there on a regular basis. And then, of course, all of the news and information that Martin and I talked about at the beginning of the show, you can find out at openminds.tv. So thank you so much to Martin for joining us at the beginning of the show. Check him out on Podcast UFO. Thank you to Caleb Hanks for the opening and close music. If you go to the openminds.tv radio page, you'll be able to find out more about him and the awesome stuff that he does and then thank you to systematics for the bumper music and of course as always thank you the listeners for being here we'll talk to you next week until then adios muchachos